As I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, Habakkuk was a prophet of God, like Jeremiah, but he prophesied a significant number of years before Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet of God uh, at the time when the Babylonian army is coming to destroy the kingdom of Judah. But Habakkuk, many years before, uh, prophesied of that, um, that coming invasion and was warning Israel that it would happen. Uh, but this book of Habakkuk uh, describes not only what Habakkuk, Habakkuk had to say on God's behalf, but also his emotions as he works through what God is telling him to tell the people. And quite conveniently, uh, the book of Habakkuk, just three chapters long, uh, can be broken into um, four W's. Uh, In chapter one, Habakkuk prays to God and he asks, why is God allowing so much iniquity, so much sin, so much evil in the land? Uh, He's looking around at the kingdom of Judah and he can see lies, he can see murder, he can see adultery, he can see all sorts of sin in the land of Judah. And he asks God, why? Why are you allowing this? Uh, How long do I have to cry out to you And you do nothing. But then, towards the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, God responds. And he tells Habakkuk to watch and wait. He tells Habakkuk to watch and wait. And what he tells him to watch and what he tells him to wait for, we will look at in just a moment. But then in chapter 3, we see Habakkuk's response of worship. Uh, He responds to what God tells him eventually in praise and worship to God. So that's where we're going this evening, uh, those four W's. Uh, Habakkuk's question of why, God's response of watch and wait, and Habakkuk's final um, response of worship. Uh, So let's look first at why. Habakkuk's why question to God. And you can see that expressed in verses 2 to 4. Habakkuk is speaking and he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Uh, Habakkuk cries out to God because he's looking around at the society that he's living in and he says he's surrounded by wickedness and injustice. Uh, He even says that the law seems to be paralyzed. Uh, The judges are taking bribes. Uh, The rich are profiting and the poor are being oppressed. And he can just see this happening all around him. He can see the theft, the plundering, and the violence. 
He says, God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this? Why doesn't God do anything? Why does God allow such suffering? And I wonder if, uh, has Habakkuk got your attention yet? Uh, Because hopefully you can see that Habakkuk's feelings here could very well be our own feelings uh, here this evening. Uh, Perhaps we look out on our society and we see uh, evil. We see how in so many ways it turns its back on God and we might wonder what God is doing. Or perhaps uh, we look more personally in our own lives and we see disaster uh, in our own lives in various ways, difficult situations, uh, obstacles that we have to overcome. And these things trouble us, and we say to God, why? Why are you allowing such suffering? What is the purpose behind it? It's hard to think of a more relevant question for so many today. In verse 5, we see, Habakkuk, uh, we see God's answer to Habakkuk. Uh, when we cry out to God, God doesn't personally respond, or at least he's never personally responded to me. But here we hear God's personal response to Habakkuk's why question. And you can see it in verses 5 onwards. God says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. We see God's first response to Habakkuk's why question. He says, watch. I'm about to do something that you would not believe even if someone told you. I'm going to raise up the Babylonian army and they're going to come and destroy Judah. God is going to use the evil Babylonian empire to judge the evil kingdom of Judah. God in essence says, I can see all the evil that's happening in Israel. Uh, I can see the injustice, uh, I can see the theft, I can see the bribes, uh, I can see the children being killed, uh, I can see the women being raped, I can see the corrupt businessmen, uh, the greedy bankers, I can see the perverted priests. I can see all those things, and so I'm raising up the Babylonian army to sweep through the whole land. And he gives a long description of how terrifying the Babylonian army, and not just how terrifying they are, but how evil they are as well. Uh, He says uh, in verse uh, verse 7, that their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Not from God, not from God's law. They decide what is right and wrong. Sounds very much like our own society. 
But then look what he says. He says in verse 10, they scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earth and mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Uh, they win all these mighty military victories and they say, we did it. We did it. We or, and our idols are what accomplished the victory, even though it is God in, a, in actuality who is giving them the victory. But imagine you are Habakkuk in this situation. You've cried out to God, why? And you've received your answer. But the answer almost seems worse than the problem you first presented to God. Uh, this is a bit like God uh, rising, raising up ISIS or the Nazis to rebuke his people. And Habakkuk's dumbfounded. He doesn't understand how God can do this. Look what he says in verse 13. Well, I'll read from verse 12. Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? What he's saying to God is, how can you possibly use the Babylonians to judge your people? Yes, Judah is bad, but at least they're your people. The Babylonians don't know you. Uh, they have not been given your promises, and yet you're going to use evil Babylon to judge Judah. And he can't understand it. He can't understand how God can use something, someone, some nation so wicked to accomplish his purposes. Instead of his problem being eased by God, his problem has become a lot worse. His perplexity has increased rather than being eased. Now at this point, you might expect Habakkuk to be tempted to turn his back on God. He might say, well, if this is the sort of God you are, I don't want to have anything to do with you. If you're the sort of God who can use a Babylon or an ISIS or the Nazis, then I want to have nothing to do with you. Uh, I don't need a God like that. Uh, that's the kind of response that many would give in our society today. Uh, you'd say, I've had enough. Uh, I don't want this sort of a God. But Habakkuk's wiser than that. Uh, he's wiser than to turn his back on the true and living God. And you see what he decides to do instead in verse 1 of chapter 2. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Habakkuk says... I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to watch. I'm going to see how God works this out. He doesn't judge God hastily. He presents his questions to God, but he doesn't reject God. He decides to stick with him. 
he decides to continue to wrestle with God in prayer. Habakkuk chooses the wise course to consider that maybe God is wiser than he is. And he keeps listening instead of turning his back. And you can read God's response to him in verse 2 of chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Basically, God's response is, wait. Wait and see what will happen in the end. Do not be hasty to judge. God says the just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk has been puzzled uh, by God's inaction. That was his problem in the beginning of chapter 1. Uh, he's puzzled why God has not seemed to be doing anything. Um, that was his problem to start with. His problem isn't so much the evil as such, it's about God's inaction in doing anything about it. God responds uh, that he sees all the wickedness. He sees the cruelty of the Babylonians. Uh, He sees their greed. He sees their idolatry. Uh, He sees all these wicked deeds that they are doing. And he says he will deal with them too. He will deal with them as well, but in his time and in his way, not in Habakkuk's. And let me read again what it says in verse 4. It says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. He says, The Babylon army, they're proud. The king of Babylon, he is a proud man. But I will humble him in time. Just because I'm not doing things by your timetable, Habakkuk, doesn't mean that I will not do things. Your job, Habakkuk, is to have faith, to be patient, to trust me that I know what I'm doing. That's God's answer to us, ultimately, as well. Our job is clear. When we are faced with injustice and evil and uh, disasters in this world and in our own lives, our job is to trust that God will work it out in the end, that God has a plan that maybe we do not understand, but we will understand one day. This doesn't mean that we should just shut our eyes to injustice and problems in this world. Uh, If we can ease pain, then we should. If we can correct wrongs, then we should. If we can do it within the law, um, of course. But it means that as we do those things, we trust that God has got it ultimately in hand. And it's interesting. (laughs) When you look at all the characters in the Bible, nearly all of them 
the godly characters in the Bible, they all suffered various problems and injustices at various points in their lives. Um, It's not easy, it's not difficult to uh, think of examples. You can almost open the Bible up at any page and point to it and you'll probably find someone who suffered great pain and suffering. Uh, Abraham, he was told by God to leave his homeland and to go and find a land which God was going to give to him. And almost immediately, he gets hit by a famine. And he has to journey down to, or at least he thinks he has to journey down to Egypt. And you can imagine Abraham, (laughs) I've left my homeland. Uh, I've done what God has said. Surely this is the time now for God to bless me with abundance and with um, uh, blessing. But instead he's hit by a famine. Abraham again, he's told that he's going to be the father of a multitude. He's going to be the father of many nations. And the years tick by, and it seems he's infertile. It seems, or at least it seems like Sarah, his wife, is infertile. And you can imagine Abraham thinking, what is the meaning of this? Why God promise me that I'm going to be the father of many nations, and then have me and my wife Sarah endure years of barrenness. Abraham even tries to fix the problem himself and uh, the results are disastrous because his job was to have faith, not to try and fix it himself. Joseph is sold as a slave and uh, into Egypt and uh, while he's there he gets Uh, elevated to a situation of great honor in Potiphar's household. And you can expect Joseph to be thinking, oh, things are looking up. Maybe God is blessing me because of my faithfulness to him. And what happens? Potiphar's wife lies about him, uh, makes completely false accusation, and he's thrown into prison. Even while he's in the prison, he sees a little gleam of hope when the butler promises to speak on his behalf to Pharaoh. Then he has to wait two years for the uh, butler to finally remember his promise. And throughout those two years, you can imagine Joseph thinking, what on earth is God doing? Why is this happening? And I could go on and on. And Moses is told to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. And at great risk to himself, he goes down to Egypt. He stands before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And at his first attempt... Pharaoh merely increases the load of the slaves, the Israelite slaves in Egypt, and they all hate him. They all, uh, the Israelites all hate Moses because he's just made their situation worse and not better from their perspective. And again, you can imagine Moses. God, why would you do that? I, I've sacrificed everything to obey you, and now I've just made things, it seems, worse. Well, one more example, David is promised by God that he will be made king. He's anointed by Samuel, the prophet of God. And he's exalted to be um, a valued uh, musician for King Saul. But how does that end up? With Saul throwing a javelin at him to try and kill him, and he has to uh, flee into the wilderness for a number of years, running away from King Saul, who wants to kill him. (laughs) David could say, 
Why did you promise to make me king, then have to have me endure all this time running away from King Saul? That's just a smattering of characters in the Bible who had to endure things which seemed incomprehensible to them. So does that not put into perspective the smaller problems that we have to face? And I don't say smaller lightly there. Um, Obviously, the problems we face are huge to us. Uh, We have to endure heartache. Uh, We have to endure the loss of jobs uh, we have to enjoy, perhaps, uh, endure the loss of a house or of great possessions or uh, of wealth. Uh, these things are not small to us, and we might ask God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? But throughout history, God has shown that his timetable is not our timetable. His ways are not our ways. That's why Habakkuk says, or God says himself, at the end of chapter 2. He says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's God's ultimate answer to us. When we're baffled by the things that happen to us in life, the Bible reminds us, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He's still the king. He's still in control. He hasn't dropped the ball. That's God's second response to Habakkuk. Don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. And did you notice, um, don't think I read this verse, so you wouldn't have done. Uh, But in chapter I didn't write down the verse, which was a mistake. Uh, no, you have to find it yourselves, but it is there somewhere. Uh, God, Habakkuk gives this wonderful response to God. And he says to him, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk says, I've heard your words, and they've made me scared. He's been rebuked by God, albeit gently. And he says, your words make me afraid, but in your wrath, remember mercy. And that's the wonderful thing about the God we serve. He is not just a tyrant in heaven who accomplishes what he wants to do and has no concern for us. God does care for us. Even when he tells us to wait, even when God decides not to explain to us the things that are happening in our lives, he still is gentle towards us. He's still open to our cries. He doesn't just smite Habakkuk for daring to question him. Instead, in mercy, he responds. He responds to what Habakkuk says. And of course... We know how God did that, um, most clearly of all. Habakkuk says, why are you doing this? Uh, How can you use such a wicked nation? But in at least one way, God answered that question 
uh, about 600 years later, when he sent his son into the world. And when Christ came into the world, he took on himself all the sins of his people. Uh, He was dying for anyone who trusted in him, whether that be an Israelite, a man of Judah, or a Babylonian. Uh, We are all guilty. We have all done things wrong. None of us deserve God's grace. But God knew he was sending his son. When he delayed his judgment here, he could see Christ coming in the future. He could see that sacrifice coming. And so he could afford to be merciful for a time. God had a plan which Habakkuk did not fully understand, although he understood better by the end. And this leads to Habakkuk's final response of worship. He doesn't get all the answers he wants. Uh, He doesn't fully understand God's purposes. He still, no doubt, has questions about how God can use a wicked nation like Babylon to correct his people of Judah. But nevertheless, by the end of this book, he understands that God is God and he is not. And he is willing to leave things in God's hands. Did you notice those beautiful verses at the end of chapter 3? Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labour of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the gods of my salvation. Beautiful words, aren't they? Uh, Habakkuk says, Even if my bank balance is empty, Uh, Even if my fridge has got nothing in it. Uh, Even if I find that my family and my friends have forsaken me. Even then I will joy in the God of my salvation. He will trust God even if everything else fails. This of course can be our hope as well. Um, You almost feel like Uh, Paul must have had these verses in mind when he wrote Romans chapter 8. Perhaps you know already where I'm going. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote these words in verse 31. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. If you can squeeze anything into those verses, which uh, is not, Paul does not include, then you're cleverer than I am. Paul deliberately 
covers every possible option to say there is nothing that can separate us from Christ's love. Um, Family may leave us. Friends may forsake us. Uh, We may lose all our money. We may lose our jobs. Uh, All sorts of terrible things can happen in our lives. But if our trust is in Christ, then he will never leave nor forsake us. So the words of Habakkuk at the end of chapter 3 can be ours as well. So I hope those words are an encouragement to us. They are hard words in, to some extent, but the comfort of them is that we can trust God no matter what happens in our life. And we know we can trust him because we can look at Christ and we can see what he did for us. And that's why I've chosen as our final hymn, uh, a hymn expressing that assurance that we have if we are a believer. Number 571, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. With the chorus, this is my story, this is my song, praising my saviour all the day long. So let's stand to sing 571.